God's grace is a really long leash. And he will continue to pursue you for a really long time. If you've got if your heart has been so cauterized that you refuse God's mercy and grace, he's given you a really long leash to go with. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Chapter 6 starts out with an odd, odd story. So let's just go ahead and dive into it. Elisha is in the, in the midst of his ministry, and he has this weird thing happen. So we're just going to talk about it. Chapter 6, verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place we may dwell. So he answered, go. So basically other prophets that hang out with Elijah are basically saying, uh, it's tight quarters. Let us move somewhere where there's a little more space and uh, we're going to chop down trees and make our own, our own settlement. And Elijah says, okay, go ahead and do that. So then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he said, I, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. And as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick, threw it in the water, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. That's our opening to chapter 6. Basically, some servants and, and prophets that hang out with Elijah, tight quarters, they kind of want to spread out a little bit, make their own settlement. They say, can we do that? Elijah says, sure, go. And then they ask Elijah to go with them. And as they're cutting down trees, one guy, his, the axe head on his axe breaks off and goes into the river, and he loses it. And he's upset because the axe isn't his. It was borrowed. And so Elisha throws a stick in the water, and miraculously, that somehow makes it magnetic, which it doesn't work that way. This is something supernatural. And the axe head floats up, and he tells him to grab it. And then we don't get any resolution to the story. So what is it doing here? And honestly, for a long time, I had read this story, and I, I just it's just this odd blurb that it doesn't even seem like it fits into the context of anything. Everything Elijah has done has been on such a giant scale. 
up to this point, you know, dealing with battles and kings and blindness and fire. And it's just everything he's done seems so big. And now just a servant lost an axe head that he borrowed and he throws a stick into the water and it floats and no resolution. It's just, it's there, problem solved, moving on. What do you do with that? So I'm thinking, as I've gotten older, not everything needs to be a big deal. And I, I think God threw this in there because Elijah and Elisha had had such massive ministries and such big things happen that it's still important for us to understand that God cares about the small things. And you don't, it, you don't have to pray as though he's too busy to care about what's going on in your life. Even the small details matter. And even something this small, God performed a miracle for Elisha on behalf of this servant who was just afraid he wasn't going to be able to return something he borrowed. Something that simple and mundane God cared about. And that's about the best application I can get from that story. So now we'll move on to the fun one. Because this is maybe my favorite story, one of, if not my favorite story, in the books of Kings and Samuel. Before we read this next section, I want you to remember something. If you were here, I told you to remember it when we read it. If you weren't here, I'm going to tell you now. So there was a point when Elijah was handing off the ministry to Elisha. And Elijah kept trying to get rid of his, his mentees as he knew he was about to be dragged off to heaven and he wasn't going to die. And he just wanted some alone time. And he kept trying to send Elisha away from him. And Elisha said, no, I'm going to follow you until you're gone. So Elisha did. And he stayed with him. And then after all this time staying with Elijah and going through all the traveling of saying goodbye to the other prophets and moving on, Elisha stayed with him. And Elijah looked at him and said, what can I do for you before I go? As one last mentorship thing. What can I do? What can I do for you? And Elisha said, can I have a double portion of your spirit? Really meaning, I know that I'm the one who's taking over for you, but I'm not you. So I need more of God's help to do what you did, Elijah. And Elijah says, I, that's not mine to give. Here's what I'll tell you. If you see me when I leave, if you see what happens when I leave, then you'll receive what you've asked for. If you don't see it, then I'm sorry, it just it's not mine to give, and you won't receive the double portion. Well, Elisha gets carried off to heaven in a chariot of fire, and Elisha sees it. And so he does receive that double portion of the Spirit, and then he walks over to the Jordan River, towel whips it with the robe, the water splits into half, and just like Elijah did on their way to the place where Elijah got picked up from God, Elisha does the same thing on the return to the prophet, showing him that he's received the power of Elijah. Now, I want you to remember that because the key factor was Elisha saw what happened to Elijah. He saw him get carried off to heaven. So now, let's get into this. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servant, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to this place, which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there just once or twice. 
Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No, my lord, the king, uh, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So what's happening is the king of Syria is just failing at his war with Israel. He keeps losing battles, he keeps failing, he doesn't understand, and it gets so bad that he actually thinks someone in his army is a mole. And he says to him, says to everyone, he's like, who is it? And I, he's, he's probably looking to end someone's life because he can't understand how they seem to know and are one step ahead of everything the Syrian army is doing. And his servant says, nobody's betraying you. There's this prophet in Israel named Elisha, and he knows every, he knows everything that you're doing. So much so, he can tell the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. So, Elisha was the first Alexa, or Google, whatever you want to call it. But he could hear everything, because he, he had a God's eye view of everything. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. So now he's looking for Elisha. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, master, what, what shall we do? So the king of Syria is looking to take out Elijah or take him as a prisoner of war or something. He just wants to get a hold of this guy who's ruining all of his plans. So he sends out an entire army to take down one guy. That's how much power Elijah has had over the losses of this king. And he is not willing to take another loss. Now Elisha's servant wakes up and he sees an entire army camped around them, knowing that they're looking for Elisha and him. And he says to Elijah, oh no, what are we going to do? So the servant doesn't have the same perspective as Elisha. He's worried, he's scared, he's asking Elijah, what, what are we going to do about this? There's an entire army. I'm scared. That's a, that's a normal feeling. You feel like there's an entire army after you. You should be scared. So he answered, do not fear. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So he basically says, uh, God's on our side. And because God's on our side, there's more with us than with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. So Elisha says, You don't need to worry. There's more. We have a bigger army than them. Now, his servant is probably going, What are you talking about? I am not an army bigger than that. I'm the only other guy here. What are you talking about? So Elisha prays and asks him to see. Ask for God to let this man to see. And when he does, he opens his eyes and he sees the angels protecting and all of the chariots of fire with angels all around and it outnumbers the army that's after them. Now the question here is, for me, is that how Elisha saw the world all the time? Because he was able to see it when his master, Elijah, was taken away into heaven, and he knew what it looked like behind the veil 
and he asked God to show his servant. So the question is, does, did he see the world like that because of the double portion that he got from Elijah? Or did he just have that much faith? I'm more inclined to think it was the latter, but that unique portion of the story has to make you wonder. Because I wonder how we would act if we saw the world that way. If we could see beyond the veil and see the spiritual part of the world and the war going on there, and we could see who is for us and who's against us in the spiritual realm, I bet we would be a little more confident. So that to me is just a very, it's really unique. Also, what Elisha did, whether or not he could see, was he asked that his servant could. Now, and this is maybe more sermon material than a Bible study, but I'm going to say it anyway because tomorrow's my birthday. So I get to do what I want. No, I'm just kidding. But I, I do think if I could ask for people to see what's really going on and to really see the spiritual warfare and the battle between good and evil so that they could end up on the right side of the battle, that is something we, we should really do because the world is not, it's not getting brighter right now. And there is definitely a cascade of fake light over the world uh, pretending to be virtue when it's not. And so I, I think a lesson from Elisha here is warranted in asking the world to come to its senses and see, see beyond the material. So with that, I'll move on. But that's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament in general. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw that they were inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? I like that he says it twice because he really wants to do it. Because this is war. These people have been warring against Israel. They've come into the camp. Elisha has done an interesting thing. He asked God to blind this army. They're blind. And now I don't know if this means that they actually couldn't see anything or if they just couldn't perceive Elisha and his servant. But either way, Elisha and his servant bring them to the king of Israel. And they just go along with it. And now they're standing there before the king of Israel, who asks Elijah, should I kill them? Should I kill them? And this is Elisha's response. He says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the hands of the Syrian raiders came no more to the land of Israel. Now, that word raiders is really important, so keep that in your mind for the next minute or so. But what he does is he tells the king, you can't kill them. It really, it would be against their custom and laws to kill prisoners of war, which is basically what these guys were. They now had them under their control in front of the king of Israel, and they're harmless at this point. And he says, you can't kill them, and they prepare a feast for them, and they feed them. Now, this is very much like, you know, Jesus said, Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what he's doing. But then he said the band of raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Now this does not mean that Syria will not make war against Israel. Raiders and battle is different. A group of raiders would find their way into the city to destroy stuff within the city to make the process of sieging go quicker. So 
Because when you're sieging this city and you're outside of the walls trying to get in and they're defending it, if you can get some people in and you can destroy some crops or steal things or steal livestock, then you're depleting their resources quicker to make it harder for them to survive inside the walls. So if they have to come out outside the walls, you can now conquer them easier because the walls are your best defense. So the Syrian raiders, they didn't make any more raids on Israel. That's going to make this battle elongated. So it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria, which is the capital city of northern Israel. So I wanted to set that context so that you didn't hear there's no more raiders going in, and then now they're going against war against Samaria, and have you feel like there's two contradictory statements there. They're not. There's just no more poaching. It's just honorable war, if you can call it that. So Ben-Hadad goes and besieges Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Now, to give you an understanding of what's happening here, basically because they're sieging the city, they are naturally running out of resources, so supply and demand, resources get, the cost gets higher. So that's what they're pointing out, but the dove droppings is one of two options. It might actually be dove droppings um, that they would have used as some sort of fuel, or it could have been a plant that was called dove droppings where the bud of it was edible and it looked like the Star of David. Um, it's possible that that's what that was because they were seeking out food uh, even if it was an unclean food because they were looking to survive the siege. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor? from the wine press, then the king said to her, what is troubling you? So king's walking by, a woman says, help me. He says, what am I going to do for you? I'm in just as much trouble as you are, except my head's one on the line, lady. What do you want? <laughs> and she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So now you're seeing how dire it is. This is like the soccer team that got caught in the plane crash, where they had to start eating each other to survive. This is bad. They're running out of resources that bad. And she says, so we boiled my son and ate him. I can't imagine, but that's what happened. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. So that's, I'm not going to expound on that. You see what happened. <laughs> it's horrifying. Um, now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes as he passed by on the wall, and the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. So he was wearing sackcloth in mourning for how bad things were, and this actually troubled him pretty badly, as it should have. Then he said, God, do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. So he's looking to kill Elisha today. But Elisha was sitting in the house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent me to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him, and the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer? So, Things are getting bad. 
the king wants to get rid of Elijah because he just doesn't understand why God is punishing him so bad. He's ready to end it, and a messenger comes to him, and he gets to a point where even listening to the messenger, he said, why should I wait any longer to hear from Elisha? That's ultimately what's happening here. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So Elisha's response to this king. Now, meanwhile, remember, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is not in good standing. They are not a worshiping people. They're not doing the right things. But God is still coming to their aid, even though they have rejected him. They are not doing the right things at this point in time. But Elisha's response to the king was, I tell you the truth, tomorrow everything's going to be back to normal. There will be normal cost. The prices of things are going to go way down because you're just going to have normal resources by tomorrow. So an officer whose hand the king leaned uh, answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So one of the king's advisors leans over and he says, if God opened the floodgates of heaven, there's no way that Elisha is right here. There's no way by tomorrow things are going to be normal. And then Elisha looks at him and says, okay, well, you're going to see it. So you're going to know that I was right. And you know that God is God, is God but you're not going to get to participate in it. You'll see it, but you won't get to participate. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? It's a good question. If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die. We shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. And therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. So this is a group of of guys weighing their options. If we stay here, we die because the Syrians are coming. If we go in, there's famine. We're going to die. So our best bet is to go surrender to the Syrians. And if they kill us, that's inevitable anyway. So it's our only option that seems to be good. And they rose at twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, there was no one there. So they go to surrender to the Syrians, and there's nobody there. For the Lord had caused an army of the Syrians to hear the noise of of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some therefore also and hid it. Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. Well, I'm glad their conscience caught up with them. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us, now, therefore, come, let us go tell the king's household. So the, the Syrians heard a giant army bigger than theirs. Now, that probably, it's, it wasn't the Hittites. It wasn't the Egyptians. It tells me it was probably the, the chariots of fire surrounding all of them that Elisha saw. And that's why he knew everything was going to be okay. But 
these lepers go out and they go and they go to surrender and they see the camp is empty and now all of these goods are here and left because they didn't even take their equipment with them. They just ran for their lives thinking they were going to die. This reminds me of Gideon a little bit. But now, after taking some plunder for themselves, they have a moment of clarity and they say, wait, there's an entire city of people dying because they think it's being sieged and we here have the good news. We need to tell them. And so they do. So they went and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out to the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and go into the city. So the king, th the king thinks these guys are lying. He thinks it's a ruse. He thinks... It's a plot. They're hiding, and when we go to raid the stuff they left over, they're going to come in and kill us. That's what he thinks. One of his servants answered and said, Please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. Let us send them and see. Basically saying, we don't have much to lose. So why don't we send out some people to see what's happening and just give them some armor and horses. Therefore, they took two chariots with the, with the horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army. Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed, the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians, so a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. So what happened was, because of all of the provisions they left behind, it made up for everything that they had lost over the course of time, and it was business as usual, just like Elisha promised. Now the king had appointed officers on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, which one of those officers happened to be the guy who said, this will never happen. And, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two seahs of barley for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. So he saw it, and he died. Because starving people stormed the gate to go get food. And he stood in their way. And he metaphorically stood in their way the day before, not believing that God would come through. And so now you see what we wanted to do both of these chapters because they're connected. It's the, it's the conclusion to the, the story in the chariots that opened up. And so it's, it started with the weird axe head story where really it's just there's no problem too small for God. But then this story, this is a group of people who are still worshiping false gods. They're worshiping the Baals. They're not following God's direction. 
Um, but God still protects them and still looks out for them. God's grace is a really long leash, and he will continue to pursue you for a really long time. If, you've got, if your heart has been so cauterized that you refuse God's mercy and grace, he's given you a really long leash to go with. Because even this group of, of Israelites who have gone through several kings who continue to get more and more evil and continue to doubt God and continue to push people in, in the direction of worshiping pagan gods and not him, he still helps them out. He still protects them for as long as possible. And so, ultimately, this is a, it, it's a rough story. A famine struck the land because of a group of, of warriors camping around the city and cutting off their resources. But when they were on their last leg and they had no chances left, God protected them without an arrow being fired. And he brought them back to normal at the drop of a hat, even while they were actively worshiping against him. So that is the type of God that the Bible speaks about. So when he does produce judgment, it's a pretty long leash that causes judgment to fall. So with that, let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you that your grace is so abundant. Uh, I know I'm thankful that you gave me a long leash and gave me a chance to meet you and turn my life around. God, I'm, I'm so thankful that you're there for big things and you're willing to make big changes and move mountains and defeat enemies, but you're also there in all the little details of our lives and nothing is too big or too small for you for us to bring to the foot of the cross. God, thank you for that. And help us to do that. And help us to do what Elisha did. To, to pray for you to open the eyes of the world that doesn't see it. And share that message with them. In Jesus' name, amen.